Back in Proverbs this week, we finished chapter 3 last time, two weeks ago, and we're going to pick it up on 4. 4 is mostly meta-instruction, in other words, as opposed to being detailed instruction about subjects, it's instruction about paying attention to instruction. So most of it goes pretty quick, but there are a couple of interesting things in here that we'll pause as we hit. But most of it is, as I say, hey kid, pay attention to what I say. And that's pretty much the whole chapter. So chapter four. Hear, O sons, a father's instructions. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Some of your translations will translate the word that I read as gaining insight, as gaining understanding. So if you're in King Jimmy, it'll be gain understanding as opposed to gaining insight. I'm in English Standard. And in English Standard, understanding is one Hebrew word and insight is a different word. But in King Jimmy, they're both translated understanding. If you look back in chapter 3, where it says God made the world by wisdom and understanding, Proverbs 3.19, in my translation, it's translated as understanding. And it's also translated understanding in King Jimmy. But the word is different. It's taboon, which I am sure is the same Hebrew root. Bina and tabuna in the same family. But in King Jimmy, they're both translated understanding, whereas in English Standard, Tabuna is translated as understanding, and then Bina is translated as insight. In English, those are two slightly different meanings. I think of understanding as literally that, figuring out what's going on and having an understanding of what's going on. I think of insight as being a deeper form of understanding, where you can look at a situation and you can see things that are not on the surface, and you can figure out what's actually going on despite what you see at the surface level. Hence, in sight, to see into. Start all over again. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forget to forsake my teaching. Precepts typically are general rules that you can apply to a broad variety of situations. So there are rules that are very specific to a particular situation that would be what I would call a rule, whereas a precept is at a higher level. And there are lots of situations to which it can be applied as opposed to a narrow situation. For I give you good precepts, do not forget sake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And this is by way of saying he is the firstborn. So when I was a son with my father, the only one in the sight of my mother, what he's saying there is I was the firstborn son. And to give a meta overview of this particular chapter, this particular chapter is the father telling the son to pay attention. There aren't so many specific examples in the chapter. It's mostly, you need to listen to me. And the whole chapter is wrapped around that. So verse 5, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her 
and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. In Proverbs, wisdom is personified as feminine. So the her in this, the pronoun refers to wisdom. The only time it doesn't that I can think of right off the top of my head is when her refers to the adulterous woman, and then, of course, that's not wisdom. But sort of an undefined her is typically referring to wisdom. So verse 6, do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. This is a marshal. If you are faithful to wisdom, she will keep you. And if you love her, then she will guard you. And keep and guard are slightly different, but same ballpark. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. So the idea here is the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom, which is to say, if you are wise, you will recognize that wisdom is itself worth pursuing. And so the beginning of wisdom is the pursuit of wisdom, and as you gain more wisdom, you obviously become wiser, and you'll understand what it is you've got. Verse 8, prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Now this is parallel to verse 6. Remember verse 6 says, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Then verse 8 is prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. So the idea here, wisdom being feminine, the whole idea of advice to a son is treat wisdom as you would treat your wife or your fiance. It's to be that kind of a relationship. And if you have that kind of a relationship with wisdom, wisdom itself will then repay that devotion. Notice the parallelism there. Verse 9. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And remember back in chapter 3, the metaphor was that someone who is wise and discerning and understanding and has good manners is going to be someone who is attractive to other people in society. So this carries that same theme forward, that wisdom, if you pursue her, will in fact enhance your social standing because you'll be a more desirable companion. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom, and I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Now, this is a metaphor that's going to carry on for the next several sections. The idea of walking and running, we're going to have the wicked and their walk contrasted with the wise and their walk. Verse 13, keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. So again, talking about if you follow my wisdom, your paths will be straight, and you won't stumble and you won't be hampered. And that's in contrast with the path of the wicked, which you should not enter into. The other one is, in verse 13, keep hold of instruction, do not let go, guard her, for she is your life. Well, earlier it says, if you love wisdom, she will guard you. So what you have is a reciprocal relationship. If you hold on to wisdom, wisdom will be your guard, and you therefore must guard your grip on wisdom, 
so that wisdom will be able to do for you what the promise holds out. Now we're going to contrast the path of the wicked with the path of the righteous. Back to verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. All right, I'm going to come back and unpack all that now. So let's start at the bottom. They do not know over what they stumble. So the idea that the wicked are walking in darkness, and a consequence of walking in darkness is they're going to stumble over things. But being wicked, they are not going to recognize that the things that are causing them to stumble are their own behavior or consequences of their own behavior. So they're going to go along thinking that they're wise in their own eyes and God's universe is going to trip them up and they're going to fall flat on their face and they are not going to recognize that the cause of falling flat on their face is in fact their own behavior. So that's what it means when it says they know not over what they stumble. The other one is this idea of they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. The idea here is perverseness. Not perversion, perverseness. Two different meanings. Someone is perverse when he does wrong simply because it is wrong. In other words, being perverse is being in rebellion. I know that this is the thing I should do, but because it's the thing I should do, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go do something else. That's perverse. And the idea that the wicked are in fact perverse. They are looking for opportunities to mess other people up. And I think we have all met people like that. That's a good example. Somebody that writes a computer virus and just sends it out into the world just for the fun of it. In fact, to a hacker or a thief, a firewall or a lock represents a challenge. It isn't necessarily the case that they want anything that's behind the lock. It's just that the lock itself is an affront to them. And so they get through it just because they want to prove that they can. And in that process, they do damage to things, but their primary purpose was not to do damage to things. The primary purpose was, you can't keep me out. I can go anywhere I want. I'm smarter than you are. That, again, is perverse. I was walking today, and last time we talked, I think it was in Proverbs 2 or 3, I don't remember exactly where, it was talking about not envying the wicked. And I walked down to get a haircut today, and as I was walking back, there was a pickup truck parked in the driveway of one of the neighbors. And on the back of it is one of these things, does not play well with others. And the other one is the nasty little kid urinating on something, you know, the little stick figure. All those kinds of things are perverse. And there are, and remember, this is aimed at young men right now. And for young men, that all seems really cool. I'm a bad guy. I don't play well with others. Don't mess with me. And what 
Solomon is saying here is uh, don't be stupid because doing those kinds of things is going to lead you down a path and you're going to stumble over something and you won't even know what you stumbled over because you won't recognize that it's your own behavior that has caused the calamity. Some of you have heard this story, some of you may not have. When we were still in the Episcopal Church, I taught middle school, you know, I mean, at that age, I taught Sunday school. And what I discovered is they couldn't read well enough to understand the Bible. Their vocabulary was not good enough to understand what was being said in the Bible. And we're not talking about King Jimmy either. We're talking about uh, New Revised Standard or something like that. I mean, a, a fairly modern translation. And I personally think that's deliberate. I think that the teaching has been dumbed down so that people do not understand the Bible. And when I get into Proverbs, it's like, ooh, what's the difference between understanding and insight? So for those of you who know all these differences, just bear with me. Nothing I can do about it. So the perverseness of the wicked, and they don't know over what they stumble. So now verse 20. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. And then they, they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. And they are robbed of sleep unless they have tripped somebody up, made somebody stumble. And then they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And when you're dealing with the young, and again, I've said this before, everybody goes through a stage of being a fool. It just goes with being young. Young people are fools. Not necessarily bad, but fools because they don't know anything yet. And the purpose of Proverbs is to get a young man through that fool stage and get his feet on the path to wisdom so that as he goes through his life, he will increase in wisdom instead of going down the path of a fool and becoming from there a mocking fool and then finally a hardened fool for which there's no hope. But the idea that everybody starts off as a fool is just part of being human. Everybody does. This book is to take a young fool, give him some insight that he does not have to pay for in skin, and put his feet on the path of becoming a wise man as opposed to the path of becoming a hardened fool. That's the purpose of the book. But it starts off with, you don't know nothing, and you're dumb, and moves on from there. Which again, everybody goes through, and of course, Young people who are dumb are the last ones to realize it. That's the other part of it. Verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. One of the things that's going to happen in Proverbs is this idea of the correlation between your attitude and your health. So later on in Proverbs, it's going to say things like, a merry heart does good like a medicine. And I forgot the precise phrase, but basically sadness or depression rots the bones. I don't remember exactly what the phrase is, but the idea that your attitude has an influence on your health starts here in Proverbs, and it will just keep going. And the idea is you have a great deal of control over your body simply through your attitude. 22, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And going back to this idea that this is aimed at a young fool, it is a characteristic of the young that they just go and do things without necessarily thinking two steps ahead to what the results are going to be. And this paragraph says, no, you need to actually pay attention to your path where you put your feet, which is your actions. You need to actually pay attention to that as opposed to just sort of blowing headlong through life and letting your feet guide you. In other words, you guide your feet instead of the other way around, is what it's saying. Keep your heart with all vigilant, for from it flow the springs of life. And what's going to happen as we get down into talking about adultery, he's talking there about your life force. And what you need to do is you need to watch what you let your heart be involved in, because your life flows through your heart. And if your heart becomes corrupt, your life will become corrupt. And it's going to talk about that in chapter 5 in terms of the adulterous woman. Paul, for example, in one of his letters, says that adultery is of a different character than most other sins. Because in adultery, what happens is you give of your heart to someone else. And it's now no longer you just doing dumb stuff. It's you doing dumb stuff linked up with somebody else. So it, it sort of raises the ante a great deal. And Solomon will say the same thing in a different way in a minute. Every thought that you have comes bundled with an emotion. So every thought that you have, you have bundled with it an opinion of how you feel about it. So as you're thinking and you're talking and so forth, your heart is involved with everything. And I use an example. I decided maybe I want to lose a couple pounds. So I decided not to have a chocolate bar after lunch. But I really want that chocolate bar. And I can see my body and I can see, I'm going to eat that chocolate bar. I know what's going to happen. And I can see it happening 20 minutes out. And my heart, if you will, has decided we're going to have that chocolate bar. Now, you can bawl and squall all you want, but we're going to have that chocolate bar. I can tell when my willpower is going to work and when it's not going to work. And I can just watch myself do it. It's, it's, I can certainly interrupt it, but I'm just saying, I can literally watch this process happening. And that's the emotion that goes with the thought. Because as I say, there's nothing about which you don't have an opinion. And so at some level, you have an emotional reaction to every thought that goes through your head. It may not be a strong emotional reaction, but you do have a reaction to it. And if you don't work those two things together, you're going through life half blind. Chapter 5, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. Take a little impact. We've talked about wisdom. We've talked about understanding. We've talked about we've talked about discretion. Everybody know what discretion is? Have we, have we done discretion? Knowing when to speak and not to speak is basically discretion. Knowing when to speak appropriate to the situation. And your lips may guard knowledge. 
One of the big things in the rabbinic literature that I have read is keep your mouth shut. Because if you don't run your mouth, there's just an amazing number of things that don't ever go wrong. In the rabbinic literature I've read, the general default position is keep your mouth shut. Because you won't get in trouble with God, because you won't make vows that you can't keep, you won't get in trouble with other men, because you won't say things that upset people. There are just all sorts of things that won't happen if you keep your mouth shut. Let me read one and two again now. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. Which is to say, you don't need to say everything you know. So the idea of your lips guarding knowledge is you've got knowledge in there. You don't need to let it all come out. Now we're going to switch gears here. So verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But at the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, this is one kind of a strange woman. The word forbidden there is actually translation of strange, as in a stranger, not as in weird. So the underlying Hebrew is strange. Not your wife, not your mother, not your sister, not somebody that is available to you intimately. So the idea of this woman, however, is she's a frivolous. She is not thinking about what she's doing. Look at it again. Verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So this is a girl or a woman who is at least as foolish as you are. And she's wandering them all in her yoga pants kind of thing. The way the Bible describes it, I think it's in Jeremiah, when God talks about Israel. She's like a donkey in heat and she will find a mate. That's how God describes Israel when Israel goes into idolatry and so forth. So this woman here is not necessarily married to somebody else. She is simply loose. Basically, it is a woman without sense or discretion and easy to pick up kind of a woman. In a minute, we're going to talk about the adulterous woman. And that's different than this woman here. Verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This describes what I would call an old liberty. Literature is full of Don Juans, rakes. There are lots of words for it. But basically, a man who spends his life in dissipation, Falstaff in Henry IV, is that kind of a man. And at the end of his life, 
He has no family. He is dissolute. Friends are all party people, so you have no real close friends. You have nothing. And the last part of this, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation, which is to say my reputation among my peers is exactly what I deserve. So the idea then of putting your feet on a path of being a libertine sounds really good when you're 18, but by the time you're 50 or 60, that kind of a life will have destroyed you, and it isn't obvious when you're starting, and so what Proverbs is doing is saying, I have seen what happens to people who put their feet on that path, and I'm telling you, don't do it, because the end of that path is not someplace you're going to be pleased with. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Listening to some Bible teacher, I don't remember who it was, and he said, you know, you can imagine a father sitting down and having this talk with his son. Why are you talking about, Dad? Drink water from, gosh, what are we talking about here? Obviously, a metaphor. So drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. And the idea there is, remember we said earlier that your life flows through your heart. Well, there's another part of your body that your life also flows through. And the idea here is that you don't want that to be scattered abroad. You want to have that be exclusive between you and your wife. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. So the idea here is instead of going out and being a libertine and scattering your wife in the streets, you want to keep that between you and your wife. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. So here, my translation has the forbidden woman, which is the stranger, and it also has the adulteress, which in this case is a foreign woman, foreign to you. In other words, foreign in the sense that she's not in your family, which is to say she's not your wife. 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So the idea here is, as you walk out your life, you are not walking it out alone. In fact, God is paying attention to what you do. 22. The iniquities of the wicked man ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This goes back to what I said earlier, that at the end of his life, when he is held up to contempt, in the assembly of the congregation, it is because he has earned that kind of a life. And at the end, his lack of discipline will wind up killing him, if not literally, then certainly societally and metaphorically. I'm not going to start on chapter 6. <laughs>